Uh, let me just say a quick word about the, uh, the sound issues we're having this morning. Did you all hear that? Yeah, okay. We were just pretending we didn't. We're just going to keep singing. If you're our guest, you probably thought, that's just what happens here. Okay, I guess we just go along with it. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we, we switched the, way, the setup in this room. We were set up over there, and now we switched this way. And we're just having a couple of uh, kinks in the sound system, and uh, hopefully we can get those sorted out. Uh, just so you know, I think the temptation is always to look over to the sound people over here. Nobody's pushing a button and making that happen. <laughs> Uh, these volunteers are working really hard. We appreciate them. Can we just give them a round of applause? These folks work really hard. We're really grateful for them. And we're just so grateful for all of you that are involved in PBC to volunteer and make the things that happen every week uh, be able to happen. So we're really appreciative of each of you. Uh, you know, it's possible, speaking a little bit of technology, uh, to say something that is technically true, but not helpful. So consider the story of a Russian rocket that was launched last August. For the first time in nearly 50 years, Russia was attempting another moon landing. In 1976, it was the last time Russia landed something on the moon with a rocket named Luna 24. And in that time, the Soviet Union was an intense, in an intense space race with the United States. And now there's an ongoing war with, uh, uh, with Russia and Ukraine, and tensions between Russia and the United States are, are kind of at an all-time high, at least in recent decades. And so perhaps for the Russian people, the opportunity to land on the moon again was a great opportunity for national pride. And so they sent a rocket named Luna 25 in August to the moon. But it was not to be. The official report from the Russian government, and I'm not making this up, the, the official report from the Russian government was that Luna 25 ceased to exist. Perhaps they were taking a cue from Elon Musk, who said in April 2023, after a similar fiasco, that his rocket had a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. <laughs> now, both statements are technically true, but neither of them are very helpful. I don't know what it is about rocket scientists that makes it harder for them to just be honest. The thing blew up, but whatever. It doesn't really tell you much to learn that Luna 25 stopped existing. The full story is that Luna 25 crashed into the moon after a technical glitch. And since the crash, NASA has since released evidence of a new crater on the surface of the moon. Thank you, Luna 25. I think there's an important lesson that we can learn from the Luna 25 debacle. We should speak in a way that is not only technically true, but actually helpful. So, for example, consider the ways that we often talk about men and women in parenting. If you're with us for the first time this morning, we are in the middle of a six-week sermon series looking at what the Bible has to say about biblical manhood and womanhood. Normally, our normal diet is to walk verse by verse through books of the Bible, but occasionally we'll step out for things like this. And I want you to think about how we often talk about parenting. Often... We talk about parenting in a generic sense. Parents do this, parents do that. What we often fail to do 
is talk about mothering and fathering. We often fail to explain that moms and dads are not interchangeable. There is a difference between being a mother and being a father, just as there is a difference between being a man and being a woman. So as an author and social commentator named Ryan Anderson says, there is no such thing as parenting. There is mothering and there is fathering. Children do best with both. Or as David Papineau, a professor of sociology at Rutgers University says, we should disavow the notion that mommies can make good daddies, just as we should disavow the popular notion that daddies can make good mommies. The two sexes are different to the core, and each is necessary culturally and biologically for the optimal development of a human being. That sounds like a good Big Ten school. That was a joke, <laughs> and it was not in my notes. And we're going to talk about parenting in a way that is both true and helpful. We need to talk about the difference between being a man and a woman in the family. So if you're not already there, open your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 6. It's going to help you a lot if you have a Bible open or your app open where you can follow along in God's Word as we walk through the text. And by the way, if you're our guest and you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those black Bibles as our gift to you. We were with us last week. We examined Paul's words to the Ephesians for husbands and wives. And we said that because men and women are equal and different, we have different roles and responsibilities in marriage. And today we're going to move on to chapter 6. But this time we're going to consider what manhood and womanhood looks like in the family. Here's the big idea I hope to communicate from God's word with his help. Because men and women are equal and different, moms and dads are both equal and different. Seems pretty straightforward. And yet in the 21st century, maybe not so much. We're going to do that by examining, number one, how dads and moms are the same. And number two, how dads and moms are different. Now, before we begin, I want to say a, a few words to those of you who find yourself in exceptional situ uh, circumstances this morning. Some of you uh, are not able to have children, even though that would be your heart's desire. Maybe some of you have lost children. And so, hearing a, a sermon on parenting, on mothering and fathering is, is for you exceptionally painful. Some of you are, are single moms or single dads. So the idea of a mother and a father in the home is really foreign to you. It's not your life. And you might wonder if there's anything for you here. Uh, some of you here are, are following Jesus, but your spouse is not. So, so you're kind of functioning like a single mom or a single dad, even though you have a husband or a wife. Uh, some of you grew up without a mom or dad or with a bad mom or dad. So this topic is exceptionally painful for you. In the very first line of Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, he says, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. We, we cannot possibly this morning address all the ways that our families are unhappily broken by sin and suffering. 
But what we can do is hold up for, for you God's good design in his word for the human family where a mother and a father are united in a covenant working together to parent their children. And we can remind the rest of you who find yourself in a different circumstance that there is grace for you at the cross of Christ. And there is hope and a home for you in a church like Bacosan Baptist Church. So with that said, let's consider first how dads and moms are the same. Consider with me in our text two main ways that dads and moms are the same. First, in verse 1, both moms and dads have authority. Look at Ephesians 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, the, the authority that a husband has over his wife, headship in the home. And, and I talked to you about a book named, uh, a book titled Authority by a pastor named Jonathan Lehman. And in that book, he, he, he determines there's two types of authority in the scriptures. There's authority of counsel. That type of authority doesn't have a way to enforce obedience. And then there's authority of command. An authority of command does have a way to enforce obedience. Parents, you have authority of command. Unlike a husband who has the authority of counsel over his wife, it's a, it's a lesser or a milder form of authority. A mom or a dad, you have authority and a command even to exercise that authority and expect obedience in a way that a husband or an elder in a church does not. Now, we don't have time this morning to take a deep dive into everything that the Bible says about discipline in the home, discipline for moms and dads. But let me just say this to the parents. Your kids are not in charge. I think we need to hear that. So I'll say it one more time. Your kids are not in charge. God ordained that moms and dads would have authority in the home, not because we're smarter, although I think most of the time we are. Sorry, kids, I love you. But I think that we just have wisdom that you might not have yet. Not because we're necessarily better, but because God has ordained that children would grow up underneath good, godly authority. Moms and dads, it is not loving to shirk your responsibility to exercise authority over your children. It's not loving. Now, you can watch all the Bluey episodes that you want to, and I like Bluey, but there is a place for a mom and a dad to sometimes say to their children that incredibly painful word for parents of young children in the 21st century, no. Moms and dads, you have authority that God has given you. Look at the text. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. Now, this does not mean, parents, that you have absolute, unquestioned authority over your children. But you do have authority. Again, Jonathan Lehman's book, Authority, is really helpful here. Uh, he offers the following 
uh, the following thought experiment to think about the authority that a parent has. Who has final authority over a child? Is it the parents or the government? Who would you say? I'm here, I heard a couple governments and mostly parents. I think the parents, most of us would say parents have been given final authority over the child. But what if the parents are abusing the child? I think in that th instance, we would say the government has authority to come into the home and rescue the children. And so we might think, well, maybe I need to tweak it. Well, maybe it is the government. Well, what if the government says to the parents, you have to affirm everything that your child says about himself or herself. So if your child says, I'm a cat today, you got to feed him cat food. And you got to help him purr. I think most of us would say the government does not have authority to step in there. So, so the point being that authority over children is always limited, and it's never ultimate. The government has authority sometimes and in some ways, and so too do parents. But the ultimate authority is who? It's God. It's God. Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. Because he is ultimate authority. But the key point here is that this authority is equally given to both moms and dads. Just consider one proverb, Proverbs 1 verse 8. He says, hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. So kids, this means... You need to obey both mom and dad. All the TV shows, except for maybe Bluey, will make you think that the dad is just kind of this bumbling idiot. He has no idea what's going on. Sorry, kids, I said the I word. And you just think that you can't, you can't follow dad. And yet, the scripture says, children, obey your parents, dad and mom. And moms and dads, you have responsibility to exercise loving, gentle, clear, consistent, sometimes firm authority in the home. A second way that moms and dads are the same is that both moms and dads deserve honor. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, this one seems pretty straightforward. Because moms and dads both have authority, they both deserve honor. But I think it's significant that even though father and mother should be honored, they are honored differently. You honor the father as he fathers and your mother as she mothers. He does not say, obey your parents and honor your parents. He says, obey your parents, equal shared authority, and honor your father and your mother. You honor them as they faithfully obey God's design for their life. Children, the clear application for you today, this morning, little ones, you need to honor your mom and dad. The way you talk to them, the way you talk about them, the way you respond to them matters. One of the things we've taught our children since they were very, very little, and parents, I recommend that you do this. Teach your children what obedience means. What does it mean to obey? 
And we came up with a really simple way to explain it to little kids. Obedience is all the way, right away, with a right heart. That's what obedience means. That right heart, that's honoring. So little ones, you need to learn to honor mom and dad. And moms and dads, hear me, the older your kids get, the more they will be tempted to disrespect you. Parents of older children, can you agree with that? I'm I'm hearing an amen somewhere. The older your children get, the more they will be tempted to disrespect you. So here's what you must do. You must not allow that. Fathers, do not allow your children to disrespect their mother. Mothers, do not allow your children to disrespect their father. You must fight for honor in the home because that is what God requires. Well, that's how moms and dads are the same. Consider with me, number two, how dads and moms are different. Although we know instinctively this is true, we live in a culture that is increasingly afraid to say that out loud, don't we? The idea that anyone would say that there's a difference between a man and a woman in our culture, it's increasingly taboo. We especially don't want to talk out loud about how dads and moms are different. But the Bible is pretty clear. Moms and dads are not interchangeable. You guys have a different role to play in the home as men and as women. So using verse 4 as a launching pad, I want to consider five ways that moms and dads are different. Men, the first four of these are for you. And ladies, you get one at the very end. So listen up. Number one, dads, I believe that you are called to be the primary pace setters in the home. You've heard the saying, uh, happy wife, happy what? Happy life. Or if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Now, there's a measure of truth in those statements. There have certainly been times in my home when mama wasn't happy and nobody else was either. And yet... I think, biblically, I think men are called to be the primary pace setters in the home. That's a natural implication of the idea of male headship that we talked about last week. Men, if you are called to be head over the wife, you are also called to be head over the home. That means the culture of your home is primarily set by you. I think you see that if you look carefully at verse 4, where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, what does Paul mean by provoking your children to anger? Is he talking about picking on your kids, teasing them? I don't think that's what he means because that sort of picking and teasing is really more of like a personality trait, right? Uh, Many of you, your homes are like mine where the mom is the primary teaser. But I don't think Paul is talking about teasing. I think he's talking about a Culture in your home that angers and discourages your children. And I think we get that when you look at a complimentary passage, Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 21, it'll be on the screens. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. 
I want you to notice he's once again talking to fathers. And I want you to know as well, the at risk here is not some sort of short-term anger, but long-term discouragement. I think what Paul is saying is that our homes have a culture that will either lead our children to be angry and discouraged and despairing, or it will lead them to thrive. And dads, it is your job to set that culture in the home. So dads, what kind of pace are you setting in your home? Are you abusing your authority by resorting to some sort of violence in the home? I'm not talking about controlled discipline of a child. I'm talking about things like slapping your children, disciplining them in anger, screaming at them, calling them names, publicly humiliating them. Fathers, if you are doing any of those things, you need to repent. You need to repent. Moms, kids, you do not need to cover over dad's sin in this area. Talk to someone. Talk to a, a member here, a pastor here, if dad is mistreating you, and we will help you however we can. Dads, are you provoking your children by playing favorites? We've been through uh, in our family worship at home. We've been walking through the book of Genesis, and we just did the story of Jacob and Esau. Think of all the devastation in that home because of the favoritism of, uh, of Isaac and Rebekah. Or think about the story of Joseph when Jacob perpetuated the same favoritism that he received with his own son and all the devastation and the havoc in the home because a dad played favorite. Dad, are you playing favorites in the home? Dads, are you provoking your children by being unnecessarily stern? Do you say no more often than you have to? I've been often challenged by the way that God the Father, how he set rules for Adam and Eve in the garden. There was one no. The entire rest of the universe was yes. One no. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else, yes. I think there's a lesson for us dads. How often do we say no when we don't need to say no? Are you unnecessarily stern and provoking your children to anger or being discouraged? Dads, how often do you have fun with your kids? Uh, my, my notes have absolutely zero bluey references, but here I am with number three. Uh, what a good example, in some ways, of a dad that actually plays with his kids. Dads, do you play with your kids? You spend time with them. Now, just a tip. Don't watch too much Bluey. Be that's number four. Because your kids will start to want to play the same games that they do on Bluey. And that eventually, there's just a line that you should not cross. But that's for free. Dads, are you provoking your children by being too rigid? As your children grow, do you give them opportunities to make appeals when you give them instructions? This is something that we learned that was incredibly helpful. As our kids got older, we'd give them a, an instruction, and they can say, Dad, can I make an appeal? Mom, can I make an appeal? And there's a right way to appeal. Why? Because Mom and Dad, we aren't God. We don't know everything. They might have information that can help me lead them better. And I'm a fool if I won't give them an opportunity to share it. 
Do you give your children whiplash by demanding that they change gears quickly on the drop, by the drop of a hat? You know, the kids are all playing in the play place, tearing things up, having a ball, and you say, time to go right now. That would give any kid whiplash. What if you just said, three minutes? I'll come back in three minutes, and then it's time to go. Just a simple way to prepare your kids to obey the instructions that you're giving them. Are you provoking your children, dads, by being too lenient? Are you too lenient in your home? I think what many of us are tempted to do is to give little kids tons and tons of leeway, tons and tons of authority, tons and tons of ability to make decisions when they're young. And as they get older, we notice, uh-oh, and, and we all of a sudden we've got to restrict and we tighten up and we make new rules. And these kids who have had the freedom to do whatever they wanted when they were little, all of a sudden things are getting tighter. I think it should be the opposite. I think parents, when your kids are really, really young, you should set very clear, very obvious, very consistent authority. And as they grow, you give them more and more autonomy. Are you provoking your children by being inconsistent? Dads, do you act one way at church and another way at home? Do you interact with different kids in different ways at different times? Are you provoking your children by never admitting your mistakes and your sin? I think, dads, this could be the most important way for you to respond to this sermon. To simply grow the courage to admit to your children, I didn't do everything right and I'm sorry. One of the ways you will help your children to flourish under your authority is when you show them what it looks like to live under authority yourself. Dads, you are under authority. You're under authority as a citizen. You're under authority if you're a church member. You're under authority ultimately of God and the scriptures. So as you notice places in your life where you've gone out from good authority, you should have the courage to confess that to your children. It would do great good in their lives if you do. Dads, you have an outsized responsibility to set the pace in your home. The ecosystem of your home will be helped or hindered by how you lead. Number two, dads are meant to be the primary pastors in the home. Jonathan Edwards once said that every Christian family ought to be, as it were, a little church. And the pastor or the spiritual leader in the home is supposed to be dad. Now, ladies, if your husband isn't a Christian, or if he won't do this, then you do this. But if he will do this, if he wants to do this, and he just needs help to do this, then help him do it. So dads, what does it mean to be a primary pastor in the home? Look at verse 4 again. Bring them up. He's talking to dads in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do I do that? Let me suggest three activities that you should lead in. Dads, you should lead in corporate worship. You should lead in corporate worship. You should be the one getting the family ready to get here on time on Sunday mornings. It is not your wife's responsibility to make sure everybody gets here. Men, that's on you. 
What are you doing to lead your family to be here, to be engaged in the life of the church? Let me ask you a question, men, to the dads in this room. If your children only had your example to follow when it comes to healthy church member, what would they learn from you? What would they learn from you? Would it be enough? Dads, if your church involvement is poor, you might only be shooting yourself in the foot. But as Kevin DeYoung says, you're shooting your children in the leg and your grandchildren in the heart. Your children need you to be engaged here. It doesn't have to be PBC. If you're a member, then yes, here. But you need a local church, men. You got children, you need a local church, you need to be engaged in the life of the church, and it's more than just getting them here. Dads, are your children able to see you set an example in how we sing? I'm not talking about singing on key. I'm talking about singing with joy. When your children look at you as we sing, do they see your mouth closed, or do they hear a little mumble, or do they hear the joyful noise of a father who says, I love this Jesus, and I want to sing his praises, however awful it might sound. Dads, if your kids look at your involvement in prayer, when we pray together, do you see a dad taking a quick nap every time we pray, especially in the longer prayers? Or do they hear a dad who's engaged in the time of prayer, leading his children to pray? Do they see you listening attentively to God's word being preached? Or is this the time when your wife pays attention and you catch up on your sleep? Dads, you must lead in corporate worship. You must lead in family worship. These weekly gatherings are essential, but they are not sufficient. Husbands, fathers, being a spiritual leader at home means leading your family in some time of family worship. Uh, Donald Whitney says this. He says, consistent father-led family worship is one of the best, steadiest, and most easily measurable ways to bring up children in the Lord's discipline and instruction. If you want help on why and how to do this well, consider buying Whitney's book, Family Worship. It's on sale in the bookstall. And better yet, get a group of guys together and read it and discuss it together. At, at the very least, family worship should have some time in prayer and some time in the Word of God or a, a Bible storybook. Dads, you can do this. I'm not saying you have to do it every single day, but are you, are you incorporating it into the rhythms of your life? Do you see your calling to your children to be the primary pastor in their life? I remember when our firstborn son, Jonah, was born, snuggling up in the hospital bed next to Holly, and I read him, of course, the story of Jonah. The very first Bible story he ever heard. He's totally sick of it now. Now, I, I don't say that because I did anything particularly well. And, I, you know, honestly, little baby, six-hour-old Jonah is not paying attention to Bible story. It wasn't for him in that moment. It was for me. 
for me to learn to get the discipline of leading my children in the word of God. Men, you can do that. And men, you need to lead your family in personal worship. Family worship is important, but so too is your personal time with the Lord. Dads, your kids, I think, should sometimes see you reading your Bible. Or maybe you wake up early before they're awake. Maybe you do it late at night before they go to or after they're in bed. But sometimes, sometimes strategically, men, you should have your Bible open where your kids can see you and know my dad spends time with Jesus too. They need to see that. They need to see that. And dads, if you will insist that your children do their homework or brush their teeth or clean up their dishes after the dinner table, I think personally, uh, it is wise and good for you to make time for them and insist that they spend time reading God's word as they're able, as young people in your home. Number three, dads are the primary providers for the home. I want to be clear. I did not say that dads are the sole providers, the only providers. But as a general rule, I do believe that men are expected to be the primary providers in the home. You get a glimpse of that in verse 4. That word, bring them up. It's one word in the original language. It's used only one other time in the Greek New Testament. It's the word translated nourishes in Ephesians 5 verse 29. It literally means to provide, to nourish, or to feed. So one New Testament scholar, Andreas Kostenberger, says the term bring up conveys the sense of rearing children to maturity, which includes but is not limited to providing for their physical and psychological needs. Men, I believe that the idea of providing for the family is one of the ways that men and women are called to be different. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Just as the head takes in food that nourishes the entire body, the husband, the father, is called to provide for the needs of his household. Now, let me tell you about the time that this really hit home for me. We were in Memphis, Tennessee, and I have a vivid memory of in our front lawn, cutting gr the grass as Holly, very pregnant with our firstborn, was in the house. And as I was cutting the grass, I was listening to a sermon by a pastor named John MacArthur uh, on Titus chapter 2. I want you to listen to this passage, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. For the first time as I heard that sermon, I heard what it meant for a wife to be a worker at home. That doesn't mean everything that you might think that it meant. I grew up kind of opposed to the idea of a, of a wife being primarily directing her energies towards the home because I had seen it so often abused. Uh, th this wasn't, what I heard in that sermon, wasn't about a lady staying at home doing nothing but investing her time and energies and strength and beauty and the high and holy calling of caring for the home. And I still remember the exact moment 
when my glowing pregnant wife stepped outside with a glass of water and I turned off the lawnmower and I, I don't know if I did this or just tried to, but in my mind, I gave her a big sweaty hug. She probably didn't allow it. it just doesn't seem like her style. And I told her about the sermon that I listened to and I said, babe, I really, really want you to be home and care for our boy. And she responded something like, well, I was already going to do that anyways. She's <laughs> classic Holly, if you know her. Holly is both smarter and more skilled than I am. And I, again, I think I told you this a week ago, I have data to prove it. We took IQ test a couple of years ago, and she beat me, kind of by a lot, actually. And she wasn't angered. When I told her that, she didn't scream, oppressor! No, she, this was what she wanted more than anything. And through the years, I've worked two, sometimes three jobs to honor that commitment to her. I've devoted my energies to providing for our family so that she can devote her life and energies to caring for our home. Now, if you're hearing all this, you might be wondering, are you saying that a woman or a mom can't work outside the home? I'm not saying that. If you read a passage like Proverbs 31, I encourage you to read it this afternoon. Proverbs 31 woman, this woman deserving of, of great praise. You'll find a woman who is hard at work doing a lot of stuff. She's buying and selling merchandise. She's involved in real estate. She's caring for the poor and her community. She seems to be working tirelessly to help supplement her husband's income at home. Even Titus 2.5 doesn't say a woman only works at home. It simply says that she does work at home. There is no rule that a woman cannot work outside the home. Some women must work outside the home to help provide for the family. Other women work outside the home to help. Other women have careers they're passionate about and they're gifted and they're able to do that and be a blessing to their families. All of that is good. Not every family has to make the same decisions that Holly and I made. But every family needs to do what they can to organize their lives so that mom is able to care for the home. John MacArthur, in the sermon that I listened to, he said this, the point is not so much that a woman's place is in the home as that her responsibility is for the home. Or as Rosaria Butterfield writes, a helpmate is not a doormat. She is smart and strong and knows how to think and advise her husband when called upon. While she may also have a job or career that contributes to the household, being a helpmeet means that the husband's vocation comes first. Ladies, if you're in a career that keeps you regularly away from your home, obeying Titus 2.5 might not be impossible, but it might be really hard. And yet I would challenge you not to leave here this morning making rash decisions, but think, pray, study, discuss, talk with your husband, talk with your pastors, talk with other believers, and pray through how God would call you to respond. By the way, I'll remind you yet again that at the end of this sermon, we will have a Q&A time right up here at the front, and you can come with, at me with all your questions about this, and I'll do my best to answer as best as I can. Number four, dads, 
are the primary protectors of the home. Do you remember that famous line when the Titanic began to sink? Women and children what? First. That's sexist today. I'm not supposed to say that today. And yet, I think that instinctively all of us know that that's, there's something right about that, isn't there? There's something noble and good and glorious about that. I think it's significant that shortly after telling dads to raise their children and the discipline and instruction of the Lord, God reminds his people that they're in a spiritual battle. Look at Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ladies, you definitely have a job to do here as well. But I believe that the Lord intends for men to be the primary protectors in the home. Think of Jesus when he said that the thief can't rob the house, plunder the house, until first he binds the strong man. Man, you have a high and a holy calling to be the primary, not the only, but the primary protector in your home. Dads, let me ask you a question. Are you protecting your home as if it's under spiritual attack? Because I promise you it is. Satan hates healthy marriages. Satan hates happy families. Satan hates God-honoring moms and God-honoring dads. So men, are you protecting your homes? Are you endangering your children by the things you bring into the home? Are you aware of the ways the enemy will try to steal, kill, and destroy your kids? And what steps are you taking to guard them from the evil one? Man, I think that when we're faithful to be who God has called us to be in the home, moms are free to be who God has uniquely gifted them to be. So the final way that moms and dads are different. Moms, this one's for you. Moms are the primary nurturers in the home. A lady named Erica Komisar. She is a clinical social worker and a psychologist. She's not a Christian. In fact, she's an atheist. And yet she wrote a book a few years ago called Being There about the growing trend that she's noticed in her practice. The more presence that a mom has in the life of her children during the first three years, the greater the chance the child will grow up to be emotionally healthy, secure, and resilient. Listen to what she wrote in her book. She said, part of our strength as women is in being more nurturing, empathetic, more sensitive emotionally, and more attuned to the nuances of relationships than most men. There has been a new call for women to be leaders in the corporate world, in business, and in politics, but our strength as leaders begins at home with our ability to feel for and nurture our own children. At some point, women who love nurturing their children and saw it as a great contribution to society and a meaningful pursuit in life were told they were not modern, not feminist, not cool if they choose to stay home with their children. Instead of showing respect and admiration for mothers who chose raising a family as their meaningful work, society rejected these women. Isn't it amazing how 
Komisar's words correspond so well with what the Bible says about women. For example, when Paul wants to give an illustration to the Thessalonian Christians about what it looks like to be nurturing, he, he writes about a mom. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, those of you that know Holly and I, you know that I'm the one that cries at movies, not Holly. I'm a lot more emotionally wired in some ways than she is, and yet my kids never come to me when they're hurt. Maybe never is the wrong word. Rarely. Especially not if mom's around. There have been times where my children get hurt and I'll get on my knees and go like this and they run around me to get mom. They'll go out of the way to find mom. Why? I could pout and complain about this or I could rejoice in the goodness of God's design. That there is something about a woman, something about a mother that is able to care for children and nurture them in a way that no man can. C.S. Lewis once wrote a letter to encourage a mom who was feeling a bit discouraged about her role as the primary nurturer in her home. Maybe, ladies, that's where you are this morning. Maybe this is just discouraging for you. You, you. you feel like you're not doing as well as you should or you want to do better or, I don't know, maybe there's regrets that you're thinking about. But listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, a housewife's work is surely in reality the most important work in the world. What do ships, railways, mines, cars, government, etc. exist for except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their own homes? We wage war in order to have peace. We work in order to have leisure. We produce fruit, food in order to eat it. So your job, moms, is the one for which all others exist. What a high and holy and glorious calling. Ladies, whether you do that work part-time or full-time, whether you do it with absolute pleasure or sometimes with pain, whether it comes naturally to you or not, whether you do it by yourself or with a husband that helps you, the fact that you're doing this work is a noble and glorious thing. And we applaud you, ladies. Husbands, celebrate your wife when she does this noble work. Encourage her at every opportunity that you can. And do what you can to help her thrive. And we've done our, our best to be both true and helpful as we think about how moms and dads are both equal and different. But we'd be more unhelpful than the Russian government if we didn't point out that there is coming a day when mothering and fathering will cease to exist. Mothering and fathering are beautiful, glorious gifts, but they are temporary. There is coming a day when no more women will bear children or nurture them. And fathers will no longer raise them. And while that might seem sad to some of us, it's only because we don't yet fully comprehend the love to which mothering and fathering was designed to point. The love and nurturing of a mother is meant to point us to a God who cares for us with nurturing love. 
Listen to Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. And even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. The love of a father, the pace-setting, pastoral, providing, and protecting love of a good father points us to our father who showed us love most supremely by providing for us his beloved son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the love that we celebrate and remember every time we take the Lord's Supper together. The bread that we eat reminds us of Jesus' body, freely given so God's people could be saved. And the cup that we drink reminds us of his blood, freely shed so that we could be forgiven. But I want you to remember, this is a special meal for Christians who have made their faith public through the waters of baptism. If that's you, we're going to invite you to one of these tables in just a few moments to take communion with us. But if you're here this morning and you have not trusted Christ or made your faith public through baptism as a believer, we would ask you not to take communion this morning. That is not because we think we're better than you or anything like that. For the unbeliever, we want you to receive Jesus himself, not merely the symbol that reminds us of Jesus. And for those who who have received Jesus as Lord, but have yet to be baptized, we want you to take the first step of obedience before you take the later steps of communion. We want you to make your faith public through baptism. So that's you this morning. You're welcome to remain in your seat in just a moment when folks come to the front to take communion. Or if you prefer, you are welcome to leave and dismiss yourself from the service. You don't have to do that, but you're welcome to do that if you would prefer. And no one will be looking down on you or judging you because there's going to be lots of activity as moms and dads are going to pick up their kids from nursery so we can all take communion together. But if you're here this morning, you want to talk to someone more about baptism or what it means to be a follower of Jesus, one of our pastors will be there in the very center in the back by the white flag, happy to talk with you. Let's pray together and then we'll stand and sing. Father, we thank you for the gift of your beloved son. Father, we thank you that you nurture your people, that you are better than the most nurturing, compassionate, kind mother that the world could ever imagine. That the love of fathers and mothers points us to your love, existing eternally in Father, Son, and Spirit, and overflowing and pouring out on your people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, we pray that you would be glorified in what we do And Father, may we remember you and your great love for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together?